Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of each of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. I'm not preaching on the Psalms this morning, but if you spent much time reading the Psalms, you've probably noticed how many times they refer to enemies. Um, I was struck by just how many times in the Psalm we read together this morning. If I can turn there quickly. It speaks of, of uh, the Lord paying back the, the proud what they deserve. The wicked, the wicked who pour out arrogant words. The evildoers who slay the widow and the alien. And the more you read the Psalms, the more, the find, the more you find this language. Father, uh, crush your enemies. And Father, protect me from my enemies. Because his enemies and ours are the same, aren't they? We have a common enemy. And the psalmists were so aware of this fact, and yet I wonder how aware we are of our enemies. Do we forget that we have enemies, that our souls have enemies? Now, maybe for some of you, when I start talking about enemies, a face or a name comes to your mind right away. Uh, Maybe someone who has gossiped about you, or someone who's taken credit for your work. Someone who has bullied you or abused you. Jesus tells us to love our enemies and to pray for them. And if you've ever tried to do that for those people you're picturing in your mind right now, you know that it's very difficult. But your worst enemies are faceless. Like bitterness, addiction, cancer, or other illness. And our foremost enemy oftentimes is our own flesh, right? the sinful nature that feeds our selfish appetite for more pleasure or more power. Another enemy, our ultimate enemy, the Bible says, is death. We certainly need the Lord's protection Um, in that case. We're helpless in the face of death. And as if these were not enough, Ephesians 6.12 tells us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the forces, the spiritual forces of evil even in the heavenly realms. So our most dangerous enemies are real. They're unseen. They're spiritual forces, and though they know they're doomed, they're always striving to rob God of his glory and to bring down as many of us with them as they can. So whether it's a person or a temptation, or death, or uh, spiritual forces of evil themselves. Sometimes we feel strong and we feel confident in the Lord's protection, but many times, if we're honest, we still feel vulnerable and afraid, just as I might add the psalmists feel when they're expressing those, those desperate cries, protect me from my enemies and punish your enemies. The Israelites' first real enemy after the Lord brought them out of Egypt were the Amalekites. We just read that passage from Exodus 17. The Amalekites were a nomadic people. They lived just to the south of the land that the Lord was going to give the Israelites. 
and they were the very first to engage the Israelites in battle. We just read the record of that encounter, and we learn more about that battle in Deuteronomy chapter 25, where it says that the Amalekites didn't fight fair. They approached the Israelites from the rear, and they attacked the stragglers, the ones who were weak, the ones who were weary. So it was a cruel attack, an unprovoked attack. This first battle with the Amalekites was a formative experience for the people of God. And you can see that in the way God instructs Moses in verse 14 to write down what's happened and to tell Joshua. And then in verse 15, Moses takes the time to build an altar, a kind of memorial to this first victory against enemies. So this was a highly significant event for Israel, an event worth remembering and repeating and recording. But before we zoom in on the details, we'll get get to that. I want to pull the lens back for a minute and talk about how we read the book of Exodus, how we read the book of Exodus. That's a big question, but what I want you to see is that Exodus is a picture of our salvation. The Israelites begin as slaves in Egypt, just as every one of us, apart from Christ, is enslaved to sin. And God sends a deliverer, Moses, who acts on their behalf and saves them from slavery. So Moses is a kind of savior. It's a pretty clear analogy, right? A precursor of Christ. And the parting of the Red Sea, where Moses leads the people out of Egypt once and for all, is in particular a picture of Christ's work on the cross for us. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin. And he released us from the slavery to sin, just as Moses led the people out of slavery to Egypt once and for all. Now, the comparison isn't perfect because Moses wasn't perfect. Moses is only God's servant while Jesus is God's son. But still, there are strong parallels. And if you read Exodus that way, you quickly realize that you and I are in a situation Uh, much like, exactly like, the situation the Israelites found themselves in the chapter we just read, Exodus 17, because they've crossed the Red Sea, they're free, they've been freed from their sin, from their slavery. Moses had delivered them, and Jesus has delivered us. But like the Israelites, we haven't reached the promised land yet. We're still on our way. And so we should pay attention to passages from this period in Exodus because it's a picture of us, and in this passage we find out we should expect, we should expect to find enemies along the way. So I hope you can begin to see that the story is about you. You can see yourself, I hope, in the crowd of Israelites that day, and just visualize it. You're tired, you're trudging towards an unknown land, and then you're attacked from the rear, by a merciless army. And you know that God has saved you. You remember the Red Sea. You know he's promised to be with you, and you've been following him. And yet, as the enemy closes in, you realize that this time, God isn't going to just drown them. You're going to have to fight. He promises to be with you, but you're going to have to fight. Someone once said that Satan's favorite strategy is to try to convince us that God is not good and that he's not for us. And when the attacks come, 
when you're sick, when you're lonely, depressed, when you're afraid, when you lose a job or a loved one. It's easy to believe that lie, that God is not good, and he's not for me. But then, you look up at the top of the hill, some distance away, and you see Moses, his arms raised, with Aaron and her at his side. What's he doing up there? What's he doing up there? Is he praying? Probably, but you can't tell, his, you can't tell whether his lips are moving. He's too far away. Is he giving some kind of signal to the army? Maybe. But he's not waving directions. His hands are, are just steady. He's holding them in one place. And then you see the staff. Back in those days, armies had flag bearers, and they would raise a banner to rally the troops in battle. Sometimes that banner was just a a stick of wood. Sometimes they would tie a strip of cloth to the end of the pole. That would be the banner. And the flag bearer would lift this pole into the air, and the troops would rally around him. And now as you look up at the hill, this looks a lot like what Moses is doing. And this in itself gives you confidence in victory. It's a rallying cry because Moses is cheering for you. He's cheering for you. And when you look up from the battlefield and you see Moses standing on that hill holding the banner high, I want you to see Jesus. Jesus is cheering for you. He hasn't lost interest. He's not standing there with his arms crossed waiting for you to mess up. He's cheering for you. And that's the first reason you can be confident of victory against his and your enemies, is that Jesus is cheering for you. But the fight is fierce. And as you continue to engage the enemy, you need more than a cheerleader, don't you? And so you look up again at Moses, and suddenly you realize that he's not holding any old piece of wood, not just like the other flag bearers. You realize the banner that he's holding is the staff of God, the very same staff that God had used to demonstrate his power to Moses when he turned it into a snake, remember, when he called Moses? And the very same staff that God, through Moses, had used to unleash terrible plagues on your slave masters in Egypt. It's the very same staff with which Moses, at God's command, touched the waters of the Red Sea, and the waters began to part. And you and the rest of God's people walked through that sea on dry land, and when you reached the other side, and you looked back, and you saw the waters closing on Pharaoh's army, you knew God's power had saved you from slavery once and for all. So you only need to look at Moses holding that staff to remember not only that God is good, not only that he's for you, but that he has the power to win. In freeing you from slavery, in fact, he has already won. So what I want you to see again, when you look up and you visualize Moses standing on that hill, I want you to see Jesus. I want you to see the cross. Look up and see Jesus. And know that you can be confident in victory 
because Jesus has already defeated your enemies on the cross. He defeated the devil. He defeated the power of sin over you. He defeated death itself. You can be confident in victory because Jesus has already defeated your enemies. He's already won. And believing this, remembering this, is what Paul calls the shield of faith. Faith is refusing to listen to that lie, that lie that God is not good and he's not for you. And instead, focusing your eyes on Jesus, that's faith. Remembering that he gave up everything, that he gave up his life on the cross so that you and I would be free once and for all. Free from the penalty of death, free from the power of our spiritual enemies. On the cross, he defeated our enemies. He defeated sin and death. And when he rose again from the dead, he proved that his victory was absolute. Even now, he continues to stand at the right hand of God the Father, his arms raised, interceding and praying for you. So as you fight, you can be confident in victory because Jesus has already defeated your enemies on the cross. And every time you remember that, every time you praise him for that, in prayer or in song, you're exercising faith. You're claiming his victory as your own. So you can be confident in victory because Jesus is cheering for you and because he's already defeated your enemies. There's a third reason I want you to see that you can be confident in victory, and that is that the Holy Spirit empowers you. The Holy Spirit empowers you. When you're fighting the Amalekites and you see Moses on that hill, that staff is an encouraging sight. Of course, it's an encouraging sight, and it's going to motivate you to fight harder and win. But is that all that's going on here? No. Because that staff is not just a reminder, it's not just an inspiration, it's not just a symbol. That staff, as has been proven over and over in the events leading up to this battle, is an instrument of God's power. It's not just a symbol. It's real power. And he is wielding that power right now on your behalf. God himself is fighting the battle. The power is his. And if you understand that Jesus is our deliverer up on that hill, and you see that our Deliverer, our Savior, is steady and strong, and that he wields the very power of God on your behalf. He's cheering for you, but he's not only cheering for you. He's empowering you to fight. And that's exactly why, in verse 15, Moses names the altar. He names it, the Lord is my banner. Because the staff itself is not some kind of magic wand. It's not the staff, but it's the Lord who won the battle. It was his personal power, the power of the Holy Spirit. And in verses 14 and 16, God goes on to promise that he, not the Israelites, but that he, the Lord, will be at war with the Amalekites until they're completely destroyed. Okay, now you might say, wait a minute. In verse 10, it says Joshua fought the Amalekites. And in verse 13, it says Joshua overcame the army. So, which is it? 
Did God win the battle or did Joshua? Was the victory won on the battlefield or on the hill? The answer is yes. Both. You see, you and I are on the battlefield. We're in real life, in real situations that demand real responses from us. We battle temptation. We battle the influence of a culture of greed and materialism. We battle our sinful desires. And we can choose to prepare ourselves for those battles. We can choose to study his word, to pray, to meet together, to worship, to practice generosity and love. And those are all means God uses to accomplish his will in our lives. But if we trust in those things as if they were some kind of formula for success, they'll fail us. We've missed it. Our trust is not in those things, but it's in the God who empowers us to fight by his Holy Spirit. Our trust is in our Savior up on the hill. You can be confident in victory because the Holy Spirit empowers you. If you're like me, a lot of times you just don't feel empowered. You believe in the Holy Spirit, you believe in his power, but sometimes you just feel weak. Sometimes you lack the will to fight. And probably there's a lot that could be said about that, but here's something out of this passage. Let's switch perspective for a minute from the battlefield to the hill. And notice verse 12, it says, When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. See, Moses may have prefigured Christ, but he was human. He held in his hands the staff of God, the symbol and the instrument of God's almighty power, a power that could change the course of an entire battle. And yet his arms got tired, just as ours would. He needed help. He needed two others, Aaron and Hur, to hold his hands up. God never intended for Moses to carry the weight of the battle, the burden of victory on his own. Even those who, like Moses, have been called to teach or to lead the church to proclaim God's power, we all need his help. We were not intended to do this on our own, and God calls us, God calls you, his people, not only to depend on him in prayer and so on, but in each other, to depend on each other. Your deacons, your Sunday school teachers, your pastor, the person sitting next to you, everyone in this church needs help, and not a one of us was intended to fight the battle alone. We need support, we need prayer, we need encouragement. And just like Moses, our arms get tired. Nine years ago, my wife Eva and I were in Washington, D.C., for the 4th of July and had the privilege of seeing the fireworks from the hill across the Potomac from the National Mall. It's the hill where the U.S. Marine Corps Memorial is. I don't know if you've been there, but as a place to watch the fireworks, it's, it's unmatched. I mean, you're watching the fireworks burst above the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial and the U.S. Capitol in the distance And it's spectacular. It's unforgettable. 
But one surprise to me was that seeing the Marine Corps Memorial up close was also moving, a moving experience. It's a reproduction of a photograph that I'm sure you've seen from 1945, February 23rd, 1945, probably one of the best-known photographs, at least among Americans. It's that photo of six men, five Marines, one Navy, raising the American flag on the top of Mount Suribachi five days after the start of the Battle of Iwo Jima. You've seen it, right? Maybe you can picture it. The flagpole is on a diagonal, and the six soldiers are straining to raise it. One of them's down low near the base. Another is in the back. He can just barely, in the photo, I think he's already let go of the pole, and you can see him just still reaching for it as long as he can. And if you know anything about World War II, you know that that battle was a particularly bloody one, and it cost many lives. I think that picture is a picture of the church. It's a picture of the church as we've been describing it because none of them could do that alone. And do you think any one of them was worried about what the others were thinking of him at that moment, what the photographer was thinking of him? Do you think any one of them was preoccupied about whether he was doing more than the other guy? He was taking more of the burden. You can see their determination, their shared struggle, and their singleness of purpose in their very bodies. Their sole focus, their sole focus was on raising that flag, that banner. And this is the church raising the banner, declaring the Lord is our banner, and exalting Jesus together. That's what we're about. And that involves little things like getting to know each other, offering tangible help to one another as we struggle, knowing each other's struggles, sharing each other's struggles. We ought to cheer for each other. Do you realize every time you pray with someone, every Sunday morning that you come here for worship, what you're doing is you're joining the rest of us at the top of that mountain. You're joining the rest of us in the struggle to raise the banner as we struggle to be faithful to Jesus together. You're saying, even by being here, I believe too. I believe God is good. I believe he's for us. You're being Aaron or her to someone else in this body, helping them to raise that banner higher even when their arms are tired. So you can be confident of victory because Jesus is cheering for you. You can be confident of victory because he's already defeated your enemies. You can be confident because the Holy Spirit empowers you. And finally, uh, just briefly, you can be confident of victory because the Lord has promised it. The Lord has promised victory. Promises may not carry as much weight as they once did, but this whole passage culminates in God's promise that he himself will be at war with the Amalekites until he wipes them out. If you look at verse 16, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. And verse 14 The Lord says, I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. That's a promise. 
It's interesting that although the Israelites win this particular battle, they do not wipe out the Amalekites. In fact, the Amalekites go on to cause trouble for a long time in Israel's history. They stir up trouble in the days of Gideon, in the book of Judges. They stir up trouble again under King Saul in 1 Samuel, in the days of King Hezekiah in 1 Chronicles, and even Haman, the villain in the book of Esther, was an Amalekite. In fact, it's not until the time of Esther that God's promise was finally fulfilled and the Amalekites were wiped out. So where does that leave us? We're like the Israelites, we said. We're like the Israelites at the end of this chapter, Exodus 17. The battle's over. Our spiritual enemies, like the Amalekites, have been defeated but not yet destroyed. So God asks us to keep fighting and to place our hope in his promise that he is at war with our enemies and he will not stop until he has completely subdued them. Can we trust God to keep his promise? For an answer, we have only to look once again to Jesus, the Son of God, who took that promise so seriously that he resolved to keep it, though it would cost him his life. This is a God who is good. This is a God who is for you and a God who keeps his promises. Amen. Now let's praise him. Let's respond in praise by singing the hymn on page 529. Love.